Father, we thank you again for our salvation that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are our Creator and our Savior together. We return thanks now in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'd like to start with a, another little quiz question to just kind of drill on putting some of the stuff that we've learned this year together. Um, let's go back to analyzing the world, the, the system, that is, like the world of flesh and the devil, that. So we're going to talk about, just for a few minutes, uh, how, do you, how are we to look at civilization um, or the world, is the word the scriptures use for it, the cosmos, the Greek word cosmos, um, in what perspective do we put the cosmos? In other words, we look out, we see civilization, we see technology, we see uh, civilization, quote, end quote, and there are components to it that are okay. There are components to it that are not okay. And in fact, the world system, the cosmos, is said to be our enemy. Well, now, how can the cosmos be our enemy when God told us to go out and subdue the earth? Men have gone out and subdued the earth. They've built buildings, they've farmed land, they've built economies, and they've built cities. What, how do we approach this question? This is, just, this is to develop and sharpen our Christian biblical view of society around us. So, let's just talk about that for a few minutes of how we're to think about civilization. Uh, in your mind's eye, when you start thinking of something like this, a little exercise, a little approach, is to go back to this framework that we've talked about and think about what each of those events tell you about civilization. Okay, let's start looking at that from the standpoint of what does creation tell you about civilization? Man was created in God's image, and what was he supposed to do? He was told to subdue the earth. So therefore, if he builds something, if he builds a city, if he builds uh, an economy, uh, is that wrong? Well, surely not, because that was a mandate. That's all part of the creation mandate. So there's nothing wrong with, quote, the development of civilization. Uh, thinking again, since we're talking about subduing the earth and that mandate given to man at creation, where was the second time it was given that we've studied so far? We've studied that this year. The mandate was repeated to subdue the earth, go out and replenish it. When was it given? After the flood. So we have the Noahic covenant. So both the creation and the Noahic covenant are telling us that civilization isn't inherently wicked. Okay, now let's advance in our thinking. To just All this is is an exercise in taking a problem and enveloping it. Remember a year ago in Thursday night classes, I said that one of the disciplines that we want to develop is not let us get surrounded by the other guy. Rather, we surround him. And part of the game Satan plays is he, 
he, he gets a little truth like this, and he makes us stay in that like a, like a fortress, and then he surrounds us, so we're isolated. But what we're trying to develop here tonight is just an approach that honors the Word of God by making it the total authority over every area. So this is just one approach. You can come up with your own, but if you don't have anything like this, then try this on for size and then develop your own way of handling it because every person thinks differently. But in talking about a civilization, the way to do it is think. Creation and the way it covenant. What do I learn about cities, economies, uh, houses, uh, progress from those two events? Well, I know that God wants the human race to mature. So there is a maturing of the human race. If you think about the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible, which one starts or which one ends in a city? You start in Genesis... But is it a city? It's a garden. You wind up at the end of the Bible with what? The city. So there is a progress from the rural to the urban. And that is kind of repulsive sometimes when you think, because we always think of the urban movement as dirty, fills a ghetto with crime, and so on. And, and that's, that's what we're trying to sort out here when we are dealing with the question, what is civilization? How do we view it? But on the macro scale from creation, God wants to build a city. But what makes cities ugly? Let's think about that. Now, cities don't have to be ugly because the New Jerusalem isn't ugly. So why, in our mind's eye, is a city probably the least desirable place to live? What makes a city undesirable? It's the social decay that goes on in the city. And what do you want to do when you're surrounded by that? You want to get away from it. So you want to go out in the country. You want to get away from it. What are you getting away from? You're getting away from other people who are sinners. Does that suggest something about why the city, in the final analysis of the history of the universe, the city, the New Jerusalem at the end of the Bible, is possible? What has happened to all the people in that city that enabled them to live together? They're, they've re, they're regenerate, they're resurrected, and they are the saints. In that condition, the city can, co can build. In that condition, the city is a desirable place. Because in that condition, people can share and worship corporately. Because the part of worship is a corporate thing. It's not just praising God as an individual, but sharing it. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says if he, that he was troubled one point in his life with this business in the Psalms when he wrote, the book, when he wrote his commentary on the book of Psalms. C.S. Lewis struggled for, for, I guess, I don't know how many years when he wrote that, struggling with the idea that God demands praise. And he said, now isn't that sort of repulsive? He's asking us to praise him. Doesn't that sound like something sick? Until Lewis, as he thought further and further about this thing, he said, you know, wait a minute. When I enjoy something, when you profoundly enjoy something, whether it be a, a, a move in, a, in an athletic contest, uh, whether it's a, a work of art, whether it's a piece of craftsmanship, 
whether it's an excellent meal, well-cooked, and so forth, what do you do? What is it that wells up within you that you want to do when you're excited about something? You want to tell somebody. You want to share it with somebody. And that's what C.S. Lewis is pointing out, is that worship has this sharing. So in the New Jerusalem, you have a civilization. It's advanced, and it's urban. And it's great. Even though today, the urban environment is undesirable. All right, furthermore, let's just conclude our little exercise here. What else do we learn about civilization here, thinking back through this framework? Obviously, number two event plays a role. It is a fallen, abnormal universe. We can't articulate that enough, that we are living in an abnormal world. This cosmos, which is the Greek word, it's interesting, that word in Greek means the order, opposite to chaos. The civilization of this world, this present civilization, is a mixture of the creation and the fall together. That's the problem. And that's what makes it ambiguous. And that's why it's so hard to say, well, what parts of it are good and what parts of it are bad? Because you have two events that play, creation and fall together, and they feed this thing. So it's the outcome of both things together. For example, it's good that man subdue the earth and he make progress and he invent. But no sooner does he invent, but what are the inventions used for? For evil. Nuclear power, for example, can be a great boon. Now, the envir- don't the environmentalists get upset when you say something like that? But, I mean, these people get upset when you burn a log. So, I mean, you know, I don't know what you're going to do. Um, it's a concentrated source of power. It can be used or it can blow people away. The Internet can be a tremendous boon to sharing information rapidly or it can be also to share evil rapidly. So no matter what the invention is, no matter what the progress is, the creation the fall are stuck together until, and that's the story that we've looked at this year, until God separates the good from the evil. That's the point. And this separation thing right there, that's the disruptive effect of the kingdom of God. All right, so we're looking now at how to look at civilization. We said the way you want to examine anything is to filter it through this grid that we've established. And all we've done here is go back to the word of God, to the key text. What happened with Abraham? Let's come forward in time and learn something else about this civilization. What do we say was critical with the call of Abraham that had not happened before? Remember? Anybody? What new thing started in 2000 B.C. that had not happened prior to 2000 B.C.? And it all started with this man. God calls an individual out from the world of his time, to establish a counterculture. And this counterculture grows and grows and grows throughout history. And it's, in this, it's a de- declaration of war, and in one sense, it's, it's the application of the separation. The kingdom of God is coming to separate the evil from the good. And so therefore, there's turmoil, and there's disruption. Because this is surgical operations going on, slicing ever so slowly 
down through history. And it's this thing that is causing a disruption. It's an intrusion. Anybody see, um, in the last few days on television, Robin Cook's Invasion was advertised, and um, it's a kind of a neat one of the same kind of themes. I was talking to my son about it, who's a veterinarian, and he was saying how he always enjoys Robin Cook's books because medically they're, they're very um, insightful. Well, have you ever noticed something about every one of the science fiction things like that, whether it's Alien, whether it's Robin Cook's Invasion, or whatever, what are the powers that disrupt the Earth, good or evil? They're always conceived as evil. Now, what power has intruded into the Earth? Let's think about that. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Talk about a virus coming into the Earth, into men's hearts. It was an intrusion from the highest level of the universe, the right hand of the throne of God, because a member of this planet ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father. And from there, he sent the Holy Spirit to this planet, and he disrupted it. And the program of disruption is quietly working its way down through history until the end time. It's a program that's building. Now, it's interesting that the world perverts this and it's always like the earth is the normal, is the morally normal thing. And the rest of the universe is the evil thing. And we have to defend ourselves against this evil virus or this evil intrusion or this evil invasion or whatever it may be. But it's precisely the other way around. And you see, that reflects the fact that this, in, this separation is happening and it's happening from the throne of God toward the earth. And it's a threat. The presence of one Christian in a million non-Christians is a threat. Now, that person doesn't have to be nasty. You don't have to uh, fly all kinds of flags. Just the presence of one Christian in a population of a million pagans is a sign of the end. The presence of a Christian is a sign of the end times because it means that this invasion, this disruption is happening and people are, are defecting from the world. We are, in other words, sort of a, a holy rebellion that's going on right under Satan's nose. So that's the flavor of all this. And this is why when we come to the Exodus in Sinai, we develop this expansion. And that's why there's this conquest and settlement. I said in the notes that the, uh, that the conquest period, let's see if I can get this up here a little bit, uh, has been taken by many devotional writers to be very pertinent to the Christian life. Uh, back in 1911, there was a lady who wrote and taught a lot in England called Jessie Penn Lewis. If you ever have a chance in a Christian bookstore to find any of her writings, uh, it would be very interesting to read. Jesse Penn Lewis was submerged in some of the popular theology at the turn of the century. So, in a few things she says that we might, not di we might disagree on terminology. But Jesse Penn Lewis is a very insightful writer. And here's what she says about the book of Joshua and Canaan. The, the title of this little booklet is The Conquest of Canaan Sidelights on the Spiritual Battlefield, a book for Christian workers. And it was a series of lectures she gave to missionaries who were training to go out into, the, into other countries. 
And uh, let me show you how she approaches this whole conquest and settlement period. Let us take a look at the whole book of Joshua in order to get a bird's eye view of our spiritual battlefield. To do this, we shall need to rapidly refer to chapters rather than verses so that we may see how wonderfully it pictures the battle in the heavenly places described by the Apostle Paul in the Epistle of the Ephesians. So you see what these writers are doing? They're making an analogy between the holy physical war that went on to subdue the land and the war that's being fought in the invisible realm today with the church. There's this relationship. And it's not just Jesse Penn Lewis. If you read devotional literature, you'll see this theme arise time and time again. The picture is that the Canaanites are a sort of physical analog to the demonic powers. That they are there, they are damned, their time is up. And it's time to claim the land. And just as Israel walked in and every footstep that was given to Joshua that this is your land, but you must claim it. Joshua invaded, it was the conquest, and then he turned it over to the people and said, finish it, which we know they never did. And so Jesus is the analog to Joshua, that both the names mean the same thing, by the way. Joshua and Jesus is the same name. So Jesus then, in the, in the cross, secures an ascension, secures the ground, secures the blessing in the heavenly places. And it's the church who, by her faithfulness, conquers in these realms. The problem with it is, is we can't see it happening. And it's, it's sort of in the third dimension or the fourth dimension somewhere. But the church is making progress in some way. Every time we are faithful to what God tells us to do, and we operate by faith, we withstand the onslaught of the evil ones, some sort of ground is being taken out from under them. And it just goes on and on and on until the church finishes its mission and the ground has been taken and Jesus can come back again. So there's an analogy here between this. Now let's, if you will, um, let's turn in our notes to page 91. And we said last time, I wanted to just review that because there were some questions that came up after the class that were good questions. And um, I want to go over some of those. We're looking at the doctrine of sanctification that grows out of this, the Christian life. And we want to say that the law and grace are both required. And so there's this, this uh, what we call oscillation that happens. And you'll see it in your own life. You'll see it in others' lives. You'll see it in history. But paganism, which is just another word for the mentality of the flesh has this peculiar feature of rocking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between legalism and licentiousness. Licentiousness denies and opposes grace, or opposes law. So it tries to attack the law by saying there are no standards. And when it does that, it automatically dilutes grace and makes grace look like leniency. So both law and grace are distorted over here, the emphasis being here on the minus law, and then grace gets fouled up in the process. Legalism, on the other hand, appears to exalt the law, but in effect denies grace and winds up messing up the law. Because in legalism, 
the per, a person like the Pharisees of the New Testament don't believe that they need grace, but that rather they can determine right and wrong for themselves and follow and do that all in the energy of the flesh. That's legalism. Licentiousness says, I don't care what the standards are. God is lenient, and I'm free to do with those please. These both are brought into perspective by the fact that we said there's the Abrahamic covenant that gives sovereign grace. Remember that? That was our positional sanctification. God has decreed certain things, and he has said, I will behave in a certain way. So the Abrahamic covenant is, gives you our expectations for God. The Mosaic Covenant, where God gives his expectations for Israel, or the Sinaitic Covenant. Now, it's this covenant here that sometimes produces legalism. Because people act as though the Abrahamic Covenant didn't precede it. They act as though, here we have these do's and don'ts, and I can do those, no problem. And they convert what was a privately, a private and public revelation to us, to our hearts as well as to our externals. And they truncate it to make this thing appear to be just do's and don'ts, externals. And anybody can put on the phony front, and so therefore you can run around with a phony front without using any reliance upon the Lord. And the licentious route is a destruction of authority. And this typifies paganism. So, uh, paganism society at large. Because what happens, legalism usually doesn't last too long, gets tired, and reverts to licentiousness. Then you're in licentiousness for a while, and it's too chaotic to live, so you hunt around for some sort of order. And so back and forth and back and forth. Well, that's the structure that we've set, and it comes out of the fact that in, on page 91 and 92, I say, the law is necessary, but someone asked the question after class, what law are you talking about? Because in the New Testament it says we're not under the law. If you look on page 91, the second paragraph, there's, the, there's three or four meanings to the word law. The word law can refer generally to all revelation in all the covenants taken together. That's one meaning. And that would be a synonym for just the word of God. Another meaning is it can refer to the first five books of the Bible. That's some, it's used like that in the Gospels. Or a third meaning, it can refer to the Sinaitic Covenant in particular. So there's at least three meanings every time you see the word law. Now in the New Testament, when it says we're not under the law, it's meaning number three that's meant. Because obviously meaning number one, we're under the word of God still. We have the law of Christ. So that's what we mean here. Law, in the larger sense, is always there. God always specifies imperatives, commands of do's and don'ts to us. Okay, and we said last time on page 93 that there's a, this growth dimension. And there's a, it takes time. Growth takes time. And you have to be patient with yourself and with the Holy Spirit. Because when we struggle through things, we, particularly Americans, I guess, we have it in our culture that we want it over with. We want to get it over with. And I want to, I want to microwave this whole thing. And the Holy Spirit's clock isn't that way. And that's why you have to be patient with Him and how He works. Now, a little encouragement in this regard is a, a, 
a verse that many people know in Romans, but not too many people pay too much attention to what some of the word meanings are. So if you'll turn to Romans chapter 8 a moment. Okay, um, this is talking about the Holy Spirit indwelling us, of course. And you'll notice that in verse 15, we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, one of the things that the Holy Spirit gives is this sense of intimacy, with a father. That word Abba is just a, is a baby's ter term. It means the same thing in our society as Dada or Papa. It's Abba. And it's, it's a very startling thing that at this point we have that, that sense of nearness to the Father. And in verse 16, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But then, after he goes on, after all that, and that says, oh, gee, that's great, we can you know, get on with things. Notice in verse 18 and following, what happens? We have all of this groaning, this anxiety, this futility, and the, the consequences of living in a world in which we, are opposed, which we have struggled with, we're sanctified slowly. Notice in verse 26, now, this is the passage I want to just point to here. In the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, that's the translation I have, but if you look at the, at the Greek term here and do a study on it, what you come up with, see, some people think verse 26 is saying this. They're saying that when you start to pray, the Holy Spirit... Um, will empower you to pray a certain prayer. Well, he does that. But the emphasis on this verse, this word too deep, or groanings too deep for words, was a term that was used in Greek fraternities, secret societies, for passwords. And the flavor of the word is that the Holy Spirit prays in what we'll call in the military secure communication. When you go into secure communication mode, you're communicating still, but other people can't hear what's going on. The intriguing sense of verse 26 is, it appears to say that the Holy Spirit is praying along with us in the middle of all those trials in the previous verses, but he's doing so on a secure line. He's inside us, so the prayer comes from within us, back up into heaven to the Father's right hand at the throne. But we are not privy to that communication link. It's like it's a data link established from our hearts to the throne. And he prays on this line that's secure. And we can't get in on the conversation. And it's a, it's a comfort to know because he's helping our weakness. We do not know, says Paul, how to pray as we should because sanctification is too complicated. 
I mean, come on, Who's, who understands the human heart? So, we have this prayer and this prayer, you know, we may be agitated over this thing, so we pray over that thing. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that there's probably 43.78 different other issues going on simultaneously with that one that we, we are, you know, cruising around in a fog, spiritually, and we don't realize what all the other stuff that's going on. And so the Holy Spirit is making prayers over all that in addition to the prayer, the stuff, little, little bits of stuff that we see on the surface. So it's a comfort to know in verse 26 that we have one who prays who does know the full story of sanctification. And he's praying about things for you and for me that we don't know. Some things we probably won't ever know. Or maybe in the future when we receive the name that no man knows except the one it's given to, is that maybe the Lord will reveal back when you were going through that particular situation. Do you remember praying? Blah, 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 blah. Well, let me show you what was really going on when you were in the middle of that. And let me show you the prayer that the Holy Spirit, my Holy Spirit prayed for you. All the little details and the molecules of our life so, so, sanctification is a big, heavy thing, and it takes time, and it isn't microwave, it can't be microwave fast. What can happen, though, is that at any given moment, as we say in page 93, we can, to the extent that we know, we can believe and obey. And that's all we can be to do. It doesn't mean we're sinlessly perfect. It means that as far as the issues we are conscious of, we are submitting in those areas. But that is not to say that there are other areas we do not know about that we're still in rebellion. And this process of sanctification is like an expanding light. It's, I, was, I mentally always think of a, a searchlight on a dark stage. You know how you can uh, focus the beam and it enlarges. And if you can imagine yourself walking around on a dark stage with all kinds of obstructions on it, and at first the light is just about two feet around, and you, you know you say, "Hey, good, you know, at least I see myself, and I see about three or four square feet of floor space." And then, as the light enlarges, all of a sudden you see a mess out here. Well, the mess was there before you became aware of it. It's just that now, in the stage of growth, he wants us to deal with this. And so this becomes a problem. Well, it wasn't a problem last year. How come I got, you know, I'm supposed to be growing in the Lord? Well, yeah. But the, as you grow, the, the circle enlarges and the area expands. So it's, you're always encountering new stuff. And you, if you don't realize the strategy of what's going on here, it can be rather discouraging. Because you think, I'm not making any progress in my Christian life. I mean, I go from one problem to another. So how come? Well, it's because... He's trusting you in the basis of what's already happened to be able to move on to bigger and better things. And the bigger and better things are still more glop in the, in the sanctification process. So you, you don't want to get discouraged by this. This is just a, a way of looking at what's going on. When the Jews went into Israel, they had all kinds of battles. They had to fight their way through Jericho, had to fight their way through Ai, and after they won those battles, were there more battles? Yeah. Did their sons have to fight more? Yes. Well, they could argue that, well, you know, we're really not getting a peaceable kingdom here because we're always at war. On the frontier, yeah, you always are. Because what is this world system? 
It is an abnormal, evil world system. And what did Jesus say? In the world ye shall have tribulation. And we're sort of the, um, the D-Day invasion in the, in the situation. We have to go in this and be the ambassadors of the future coming kingdom. That's why we're a threat to the world system by our existence. So that's the story of the, of the sanctification process. And tonight, then, we kind of conclude this last section on page 94 with the enemies of sanctification. And at this point, we're going to get into those verses I asked you to look at on page 94, the bottom paragraph, bottom full paragraph. These verses are as troublesome down through history to Christians as the whole conquest and settlement. There's a vocabulary word you want to understand. It's in the fourth line of that paragraph. You might want to mark that word. The imprecatory psalms. These are the psalms that if you ever get into discussion with somebody who uh, is now rare, that a well-educated non-Christian reads the Bible, but if you ever do run across someone like that, uh, they will trot out these, I guarantee it, to try to humiliate you, try to make you feel like you're some sort of primitive, uh, that how can a person like you believe in this religion that holds to these kinds of scriptures? So just be forewarned. Okay, the imprecatory Psalms then. Let's turn to Psalm 35, verse 1. We're going to go through some of these because I want you to get exposed to some of the fierce things in the Bible. I point out in, paragraph, in this paragraph on page 94 that these passages, as well as traditional hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers, are often attacked today as not showing the real spirit of Christianity. I mean, there are churches, folks, that literally have cut out onward Christian soldiers from the hymn book. I remember that. During the Vietnam era, there was a church right down the block from us did that. Tore it all out. We can't, we're in war. We want to have the whole imagery. Every people sing about war, and onward Christian soldiers, you're just grooming people to think in terms of battle. Oh, that's right. Exactly. That's why we sing them. See, because they still haven't got through what, what, and let's just review here for a few minutes. What is the justification for the ethics of holy war? Do you remember? How do we answer this? There is a command in the scriptures to go in and literally wipe out an entire civilization. This is not regular war. This is war of extermination and genocide. How is that to be justified? Remember we said the answer is, it goes back to a primary problem, the primary problem of good and evil. We said that in the separation process, evil must be ripped off. It must be destroyed in order to produce peace. And it's a nasty, dirty, painful process because we are now cancerous. We are now abnormal. We've got to rip off the tumor called evil. So that's why these instructions are given. These are surgical instructions. If you shy away from them, what is going to be the consequence? The consequence is you're going to postpone what? You're going to postpone the coming of peace because you're going to postpone the surgery necessary to get rid of it.
So all these people with the, I call them the Christian social sentimentalists, these sentimentalists are actually the enemies of peace. Because by not confronting the issue and agreeing that it has to be done, are like, is like someone saying that I need surgery, but I'm afraid to go for it. Well, I mean, come on, what, you've got a problem then. Or Psalm 35, look at the text. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of the buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like the chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me, and so forth. Let destruction come upon him unawares. Let the net which he hid catch himself. Into that destruction let him fall. Try getting up and giving that as a prayer someday. Watch what happens. But it's in the Word of God. So now how do we do with this one? Let's go to Psalm 58. Verse 6. Here's a real ripper. Try putting this in the prayer bulletin. Oh God, smash their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of young lions, O oh Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman who never see the sun, she never see the sun, so forth. He will sweep them away like the whirlwind. Now that verse six has been a classic record. You ever want to memorize a verse? that will fix in your mind what imprecatory praying looks like. There it is. There it is. Smash their teeth, O Lord. Now we have to come to grips with what is going on with this. Let's go to Psalm 83. Sadly, there probably isn't one in ten Christians who have even seen these Psalms. And when they do see them, they get real faint of heart. And I'll give you a very famous example. C.S. Lewis went to write his book, which otherwise is a very fine book, Reflections on the Psalms. Watch how he handles these. Even C.S. Lewis hits Greece when it comes to this one. He slides all over the place trying to figure out how to handle this. Because C.S. Lewis was in Oxford or Cambridge, I forget which one, and he intellectually accepted a lot of the worldview around him, including a sort of evolutionary view of human civilization. So he thinks of this as a primitive um, survival. It's probably what uh, Amy learned in his, her chap, liberal chaplain class. Uh, when they get up, they like to say, well, see, these, this is the old primitive sections of the scriptures. We'll find out how primitive it is when the Lord Jesus comes again. Uh, Psalm 83, verse 9. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin and the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Orb and Zeb. These are all people who are destroyed in the conquest and settlement. O God, verse 13, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, just blown around. 
Pursue them with thy tempest. Verse 15, terrify them with thy storm. Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that thou alone, whose name is the Lord, art the most high over all the earth. Now there, in that imprecatory psalm, do you begin what's happening at the purpose clauses for those imprecatory prayer requests? What do you notice about those purpose clauses? Why is the God praying this? For whose honor? His or Lord's? It's the vindication of the Lord. It's like the neat passage in uh, Samuel, in the Goliath story. Um, we, we won't get into First and Second Samuel, but there are some passages in First and Second Samuel you really want to get an honest relation. It'll make your hair stand on end. I mean, it has humor. It is nasty. It is right to the point. And in one of those great scenes is the story of David. And sitting there overhearing all these people worried about this Goliath guy. And, he's, and he's, he's got a sandwich, and he's going to go out and deliver it to brothers, you know, and they wanted to keep him away from this thing. He hears all this discussion. And basically what he says is, I don't know what you guys are discussing this about. There's no issue here. The simple issue is that he's a blasphemer. He's an uncircumcised Philistine and maligning the character of God. Now, anybody around here want to take him on? That's David. Now, that's the imprecatory issue. See, the imprecatory spirit is one to magnify God. That's what it's about. And so look at verse 18, and you look at verse 16, you'll see the purposes behind these imprecatory things, is to declare God's glory. And that's why, as Christians, we can even make imprecatory prayers against our own flesh. Root this out from me, O Lord, that your name be glorified. So you see, the imprecatory prayer petitions are in very intimate to the process of sanctification. And so instead of ripping out onward Christian soldiers and ripping out all these militaristic hymns, we need more of them. It's precisely those that give the orientation in sanctification that we need. Let's go to Psalm 109. Psalm 109.6. This is another famous passage. I've heard it quoted so many times. Verse 6. Sort of like the one bash him in the teeth kind of thing. Appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's judged, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless. Let his wife be a widow. Let his children wander about and beg. Let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all he has. Let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. In a following generation, let their name be blotted out. How's that for a nice Christian love passage? Now, see, we, we, this is in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit, who is praying our sanctification. Remember we said he's making prayers for us that are on a secure line. 
You wonder if he's making any of these? Maybe that's why it's on a secure line. So it gives you a flavor for the viciousness. It strikes you as almost vicious spirit in the scripture here, in an evil world. Some of this you even find at Christmas time in the Magnificat. You read in Luke that passage where Mary learns she's pregnant and um, she and both Elizabeth, you look at the prayers that they told Dr. Luke about. Um, one of the interesting things, by the way, a medical doctor wrote one of the Gospels. Guess which of the four Gospels narrates the details of pregnancy? It's the Gospel of Luke. Because he obviously went back and he talked to these women. And he asked questions, you know, Matthew's a tax collector. What does he know about babies? But Luke delivered babies. So Luke was interested on the human level about well, what's going on here. And it appears that he did the most thorough research in talking to the women, how they felt, what the details of the pregnancy, and so forth, and the delivery. Well, in this passage, Mary, when she gives thanks, has a fierceness about it. She says, thank you that the rich be brought down. And you wonder, I mean, here's a little Jewish teenage girl, and she already has this almost vicious, it's a praise of God, but it's, yet it's got a vicious strength to it. And I, what I'm trying to show you tonight is there's a theme that runs through Scripture, and it, you can't be embarrassed by it. And you've got to be forewarned that it's there in the text. Because somebody, somebody's going to drop it on you, and you just want to be prepared. And you should know this anyway, because we want to um, have this attitude toward our sin, toward our own sin. All right, finally, let's turn to Psalm 137. As a psalm, this one probably is the most famous psalm. Now, the others have famous verses in them. But Psalm 137 is a psalm that um, is pretty well known. This is one of the... Uh, it has a very interesting one. Uh, the, the imprecatory part of Psalm 137 is at the end. But it's interesting that in the first four verses, there's a comment about singing and music and worship there. And it appears that this answers one of the mysteries of Jewish history, is why is it that the Jewish uh, nation seemed to have forgotten so much of their temple rituals and here it says, it may be one of the reasons, by the rivers of Babylon, remember this is after the exile has happened, so they've been deported to another country. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept, when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, and for there our captors demanded of us songs, and our torment is mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And we said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. They had a problem in continuing the praise and prayer while they were in captivity. But now, in verse 7, you see them revert again to the, uh, this imprecatory spirit. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, we said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. 
Another great passage on Christian love. Now that we've knocked everybody's teeth out, taken babies, and bashed their heads against the wall, what is going on? Again, it's the, the demand for reconciliation finally, the destruction of evil. We cannot live continually in an abnormal evil universe. The Spirit won't let that happen. We are, sort of speak, troublemakers against an evil world until it goes away. Constantly troublemakers, constantly in rebellion, in principle against it. Okay, we want to then, if you continue on page 94, um, I've gone through all of those passages. There's some more, but I think I've taken all the worst ones. I tried to pick the worst ones I could find, and hopefully that you can... Um, <laughs> we have a dwarf <laughs> uh, stand here. Um, okay, on footnote 12, on that paragraph, you have the footnotes. I don't know if I think, it, I think it's uh, terminally ill. Um, Footnote 12 gives you that passage on uh, the, the Psalms that I was telling you about, how C.S. Lewis does not, I don't think, do a, his customary good job. Such problems arise because the previous problem wasn't handled correctly in the minds of the critics. That's the last part, page 94. Notice the thought process. A previous problem wasn't handled correctly leading to this. They have never embraced holy war itself in the original conquest narratives. They have not seen the necessary place of holy war in the Christian framework. See, it goes back to the framework. And on page 95, I have an extended quote from Van Til, who was one of the great apologists of the 20th century. Man, I've come to appreciate very much. So let's follow me, if you will, and look at that quote. This is a man who basically is the author of presuppositional apologetics in the 20th century. And he says this, we must oppose with all our hearts and with all our minds the ethical program of those who deny Christ have made for themselves. That ethical program is, at bottom, the flat denial of our ethical program. If they succeed with theirs, we cannot succeed with ours. Compromise that we engage in, as we say, in order to win others for the kingdom is strictly forbidden by Christ. We should throw out the lifeline, but we do not allow ourselves to drown, D, not G, to drown along with those with whom we wish to save. That's a good illustration. We do try to save the drowning person, but we don't allow the drowning person to pull us out of the boat. Have you ever been lifeguard training? Helping a drowning person is not easy. And sometimes you have to let them flounder around until it's safe for you to try to help them. And this is what Van Til's pointing out. Don't let yourself get pulled off the biblical presuppositions and worldview when you're trying to help someone else. If you do, you're not helping them. An analogy from the nature of war may serve to illustrate this point. As long as someone carries the flag of our opponents, we must seek to shoot him. Yet we would like nothing better than to have our opponents come to our side by a recognition of our flag. But this can never be accomplished unless they swear off allegiance to their former flag. And I think that's put very well. So this is where, in the principle, you have the same imprecatory thing. It's a war. As he says, as long as they hold their flag, we have to shoot at them. We have to oppose them. We can't be peaceful. We can't coexist. There's always this irritation in this war. So with that this, tonight, um, I think we have time just enough to go through 
uh, the, the end of the chapter. So next week we can devote it completely to the review and, and a little bit on Handel. Now we'll, let's talk about the response. In other words, knowing all this is happening, the world of flesh and the devil, knowing that it just goes on and on, what is our response to the enemies once we understand their larger purpose? Now there's a passage back in page 94 that I quote that you all should be familiar with. Just prior to the, those quotes from the Psalms, you'll see I quote Genesis 50:20. Anybody remember 50:20? Very famous verse. If you haven't memorized it, you ought to sometime. Joseph in Genesis 50 is talking about his brothers and he says, I can forgive you. You meant it for evil, but what does he say? God meant it for good. How did that help Joseph forgive his brothers? Why does that work? When you see a, an opponent just going for you and you have a real problem because you see that you are the object of attack. Now, how do you ever get yourself mentally in a position to, to see your way clear in dealing with that person that's the source of that? The same way Joseph did. He, he elevates the thing to the bigger picture. He puts... He, when you're down on the chessboard, you just see the piece in front of your face. But you get ten feet above the chessboard and look down and you can see the maneuver. And that's the way we as Christians should look at life. We swallow up the details with the big picture. Joseph said, I can forgive you because I see God's hand at work. Even when you attack me, I see God's hand in that. I'm not thankful for the attack. But I'm thankful to him for what he's doing and working with it. All right, so now when we come to this last page, our response to the enemies, that's what we're talking about. They were to operate by faith in Yahweh's promised program through Abraham that the land was to be theirs regardless of the size, the numbers, and ferocity of their opponents. Yet the Israelites were not to heedlessly attack the enemies in their own strength. What did we, what we found, remember, what was the battle we saw in the conquest and settlement period? Where they decided, oh yeah, we'll go out and fight, and they were defeated. The name of the battle? Two letters. Ai. And why did that why were they defeated? When they just won they, they won battles before that, they won battles after that. Why were they defeated in that battle? Because of sin inside. Because they weren't loyal to the commander. And therefore he didn't lead them into battle. And see, that's the insidious nature of sin. That's how Satan gets us. When we're involved in a satanic attack, all he has to do is get us disbelieving and we're putty in his hands because we just don't we, it's like our electricity is cut off and uh, the, at the bottom of page 95 I have a quote from the man who started a lot of counseling uh, in, in, in the last 30-40 years Jay Adams up here in Philadelphia actually started a, started a consistent biblically based counseling approach uh, and he said this in counseling week after week I continually encounter one outstanding failure among Christians, a lack of what the Bible calls endurance. They give up. The work of the Holy Spirit is not mystical. The Holy Spirit himself has plainly told us how he works. He says in the scriptures that he ordinarily works through the scriptures. He did not give us the book only to say we could, not, we could lay it aside and forget it in the process of becoming godly. Godliness does not come by osmosis. It is by willing, prayerful, and persistent obedience to the requirements of the scriptures that godly patterns are developed and come to be part of us. Excellent quote. And finally, on page 96, at the last, 
there's the reference back to the same kind of thing where I said the, um, the aim in sanctification was loyalty to God, not necessarily doing away with, with evil, because that God's going to do away with the evil. In the two arrows, I, I've tried to illustrate this. The direct strategy is that top one. The indirect strategy is the bottom one. The top one is where we go out and attack the world of flesh and the devil. And I'm here to tell you, you work enough with your own personal sin problems, and you're going to find out you can try all the direct attacks you want to, and it's not going to amount to hill of beans, because you can't eradicate it. Flesh can't eradicate flesh. And we have to let the surgeon, the capital S, the Lord, and the Holy Spirit, do the surgery. And that's why it's always the indirect approach that works. Remember B.H. Liddell Hart said, every great war was won by an indirect strategy. That's why we lost in Vietnam. The North Vietnamese didn't even have to feel divisions in Vietnam because they had us aced on the propaganda level at home. They broke the American public's will to support the war. And it didn't matter in the least. The United States military never lost a battle in Vietnam, by the way. It's not true that we lost militarily in Vietnam. There's not one thing. There was a very famous exchange went on between a colonel who went to North Vietnam after the war and he was talking to one of the other commanders in North Vietnam. And he said, you know, he said, you never beat us in the, in the battlefield. And the North Vietnamese looked at him and said, yeah, but we didn't have to. And he's right. See, they indirectly approached the whole thing and they won because they cut us off at the standpoint of propaganda and the will to win. And that's what's happening here. Think of AI. AI. Write it in big words. AI. The AI was the case where they tried strategy one and they fell flat on their face. AI is a passage in the Bible to read when you're tempted to do this by yourself and realize what it fails. Remember we said when we dealt with the battle of AI, what do we say? If you study the book of Joshua, you always find a sequence, the Lord said, Joshua did, and the people were victorious. And then you get in that chapter in AI, you never have any instructions from God to Joshua. You never have a mention of Joshua doing anything. And then the army messes up. The whole format of the chapter is unraveled. And that's that direct strategy. Now the bottom one, if you want to, what, what would some passages that we studied in the Conquest and Settlement, what would be some good examples of an indirect strategy? that shows you where they concentrate on their loyalty to God's word and they won. Well, one of the obvious ones was the first one, right? Jericho, the test of doing something totally idiotic, but they did it anyway out of loyalty to God. What was another one, the most fantastic thing that ever happened in human history? When they got deceived into making the treaty with the Gibeonites and they kept their word and God stopped the sun and the moon and he destroyed the other army with, uh, with meteorites. So, so you've got some pictures. So these, these principles here that I've diagrammed should be more than diagrams now. You should have some biblical stories that you can kind of float around your mind's eye and think about, gee, I wonder how that worked, and use your imaginative powers. And use that artistic thing that's inside us all. This is why in, in the last quote I have on, on page 96, I quote B.H. Liddell Hart, Effective results in war have rarely been attained unless the approach has had such indirectness as to ensure the opponent's unwillingness to meet it. 
The indirectness has usually been physical and always, notice this, always psychological. In strategy, the longest way round is often the shortest way home. Very, very astute observation. And so, we finished now the conquest and settlement period. Hopefully, this has been a very high-speed scan of part of numbers. We've uh, looked at a few things in Joshua and, of course, the thing at Bochim in, in the Book of Judges. And we are at this point where we have gotten up probably, theologically, we've gotten up to the halfway point of the Old Testament, actually. Even though it doesn't appear that way, uh, theologically, most of the heavy stuff is set up now for the rest of Old Testament history. One event that we didn't have a chance to do this year, uh, and we don't have time this time, is to go into the, the role of king, the King David here. And the reason why is because of time, but we will cover that in the fall. The issue with a king is that it was not God's will for them to have a king. The issue of the king is that it's centralized government. Uh, if you, during the summer, want to look at a passage that is probably the most famous uh, passage on government power ever written in the scriptures, uh, it's 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is a discussion of the people after Bochim were upset because nothing ever happened. And they said that uh, we need a king like all the other nations. And Samuel, we don't, you know, you're a great prophet and all that stuff, but you're not a king and we want a king. So you, you do whatever you have to and get us a king. You talk to God about that. We want a king. Well, 1 Samuel 8 is the classic answer from the mouth of one of God's prophets about the dangers of centralized government power. It is a classic reference. And if you can't read that, and go through that eight and see that that has happened time and time and time again. Every time you concentrate power in a civil government. It's not against government, by the way. They had government. They had a theocracy. But that wasn't good enough. They wanted something like all the other nations. You know, let's paganize our society so we can be, you know, one of the boys. And so he said, okay, be one of the boys. And this is what's going to happen. Verse 10, 11, 12, 13. There's the price that any society pays that wants centralized power. Father, we thank you for our time together and we thank you most of all that you have been faithful to your promises, though we have been often unfaithful to your commands. We pray tonight that as we meditate upon these scriptures, that you would bring to bear the truths upon each one of us personally that we need to, to face and to confront in our own personal lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There'll be some Q&A afterwards, um, if you'd like. the word L-O-V-E with a lot of goo. Exposure to this. Without exposure to this, you can fill up the word L-O-V-E with a lot of goo.
and have it unbalanced. So just be aware that our God is a God who who um, gets mad, and um, He surely does in these passages like this because it's His Spirit that's praying these prayers. It's just that we have to remember that we're praying for us. We're praying against sin in our own life and the evil around us. It's not like we're praying against people who are completely damned. Remember the in, in remember the context in the in the conquest and settlement. They're praying against Canaanites who are who, as a culture, have exceeded the limits of grace. And yes, they can pray that. But in our case. This imprecatory spirit can be targeted uh, at the demonic power, principalities and powers that rule the darkness of this world. Yes, Shimon, you had a problem. is saying, uh, this question, everybody hear that question, it's a good question. Why in that famous passage where an evil spirit comes upon Samuel, uh, comes upon Saul from the Lord? It sounds like God is personally doing this. Well, those passages are to protect the sovereignty of God because if God isn't sovereign over evil, we've got a real problem. If you think about that, it's kind of hard to work through this, but I think once you work through it, you'll see it. It just it's something you have to kind of work through. The reason the Bible is so emphatic that it's God that hardens Pharaoh's heart, that it's God who sends the evil spirit on, on Saul, is if you deny that, then it makes evil co-powerful, and therefore you have good and evil co-reigning. In that situation, it's frightening, because in that situation, the outcome is not guaranteed any longer. So that's all those passages are doing. They're just they're all the same kind of thing. You see it hundreds of times in the scripture. And taken out of context and taken out of balance, you can get in trouble. You can become sort of a hyper Calvinist and think, Oh gee, you know, you're just people are just puppets. And that's not that's not the context. That's why you have to read the whole story and get the whole story. That the Samuel narratives are a fascinating story, and if you want, if you want to get a flavor for reading them, uh, uh, again, following approach that I like to use with Scripture, it helps me with my powers of observation in Scripture, is to pick a secular literature that has the same theme in it, and then compare the two. So, if you ask yourself, what is Samuel all about? It's really a story of uh, of the rise of the monarchy. It's a story of a dynasty, royal intrigue. Now, think about some novels or think about some history books that would give you a secular counterpart to that. Uh, biographies of, of the House of Windsor, biographies of, of, of long reigning. When, you know, when the, all the monarchs of Europe, the Russians and the Germans and the English were all interwoven and somehow there's all kinds of history. I'm not that, a history buff in that period of history. And so I'm, I'm not, I can't point you to specifics, but I'm sure you could find literature of that period. You could also find histories of the kings of the pharaohs. 
And what you want to look for when you do this exercise is to ask yourself, how does the secular dynasty work versus the dynasty in Israel? Because there's a hidden invisible hand that's working in the dynasty of Israel that's not working in the house of Pharaoh. In the house of Pharaoh, it's all plots and whose son is going to reign and by which wife and all the rest of it. In the, in the book of Samuel, you'll notice that there's a the king doesn't, never gets to be anointed unless he goes through the prophet. So the prophet precedes the king. Who was the prophet who anointed Saul? Samuel. Who was the prophet who anointed David? Samuel. Who was the prophet who came to straighten David out later? Nathan. And so you'll, you'll see that the prophets had the role of kingmakers. You know, we, we sarcastically refer to the Republican Democratic Party and we say that in the back smoke film rooms the kingmakers meet. And in the Bible there were kingmakers and they were the prophets. Those, and where the prophets did not kingmake, the king was a legitimate. It's a, it's a consistent theme throughout that. And it, it even appears in the New Testament because what's the first character in the New Testament histories? Jesus or who, who anointed him? John the Baptist. So even in the New Testament, the same format holds. John the Baptist is the kingmaker. It is through him that Jesus is anointed and recognized. The king is always introduced to the, to the, to the community through the prophet. And that authenticates him. That makes him legitimate. And once that, once that authentication happens, the anointing, which is the word Christ, from which we get Christ, uh, then the citizens of the nation sort of have to salute and say, yes, sir, because this person who has now become king has been anointed by God. The prophet himself can't pick the king either. Do you remember the story where... Um, Samuel walks into the house of Jesse and he asks for Jesse's children and, um, he, he, and, and the Lord checks Samuel and he says, don't look upon the outward appearance. Look upon, I look on the heart. And so there the prophet is clearly getting a supernatural direction. It's not like he's a kingmaker, but he's a kingmaker because the king is telling him who to make the human king. And it's a, very, it's, it's a very supernatural process. In fact, you can argue that Samuel um, probably would never have picked David. Um, Saul, by all measures that we can tell in Scripture, physically and socially, uh, had it all over David. Saul was handsome. Saul was attractive. Saul was popular. Uh, he, he had a tall good-looking man. He was a good soldier. He had all the assets. But the Lord saw something in his heart and when Saul got the evil spirit, there's a bigger picture there. When the evil spirit comes to dwell in Saul um, and then you have this tremendously involved story that goes on for chapters and chapters where you have the, the Jonathan theme. Now if you think about it, who is the heir to the throne in these stories? It's really Jonathan. He's the heir to the throne because he's of the Saulite dynasty. So the drama of this fantastic story is that this royal prince, the crown prince, makes friends with a man who will replace him and his father. 
That's what's so stunning about the, the, the story. It's not some homosexual thing going on between Jonathan and David. That's blasphemy. What's going on is a most amazing friendship. And David protects, because obviously if you read in the ancient world, when a new dynasty came in, they usually eliminated everybody else because they were competitors of the throne. And there you have the, the, David promised to be gracious to, to, to Jonathan. So you have a lot of this intrigue going on. So it's a neat, neat passage, neat book to study, uh, Samuel. Because it's, it, to me, it um, not only gives you a sense of God working, it gives you a sense of how God works in political things. Um, later on, yes, go ahead, George. No, go ahead. He was young. He does say that several places. That's right. Well, David, uh, at this point in his life, I mean, it, the, again, the larger picture, to go from the details of his personal life to the larger picture, what is God doing in the book of Samuel? Just think about the macro, macro scale here. What, da- what, what had the prophets promised? What's the covenant that comes in with David? Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7. And that controls the dynasty. Once the Davidic covenant starts in, it's just like the Abrahamic covenant, that once the Abrahamic covenant guarantees the Jew historical existence, you can have 18 Hitlers, and the Jew will never be exterminated. He will outlive every Germany. Well, once you have David and the dynasty of, of David be given covenantal power, then it becomes merely a matter of who in the Davidic family will reign. But it will always be the Davidic family. Nobody will ever destroy the house of David until all the way to the Messiah. And the world will be literally run one day by the skin of David. So the Davidic dynasty is the politically powerful family on the planet Earth. And they're given that power through the Davidic covenant. So that's the big context for the court intrigue that goes on. Now, the, the, the sequencing and the succession stories are all having to do with whether the next king will fill the shoes of the Messiah. And after Solomon, because Solomon finally wins out in that, it becomes very clear that no human king out of the house of David is ever have enough strength of character to fulfill the role that's necessary for the king. And what you've got there, 
And all the end result of those stories is to so it's, it's a commentary on centralized government. It's to say that centralized government is needed. It is needed. But who is it that should occupy the seat of power? And the answer is it has to be a perfect person. And the perfect person was lacking, even in the house of David. Just as earlier in the book of Joshua, Judges, what had failed? People had one of the most free forms of government the world has ever seen. It was a theocracy. There was practically no taxes. There was freedom on a level that we can't even comprehend in that theocracy. It was the most free society that probably human society has ever seen. And the people didn't like it. Every man finally they broke down and the thing fell apart. So what did that argue against? It said that you can't give power to the people because the people aren't any good. The Davidic stories say you can't give power to the centralized government because that doesn't work. You see what's happening as biblical history unrolls? It's a refutation of everything that man can do and showing that apart from regeneration, we can't function as a human race. We can't function socially. We can't function politically. We can't function economically in any other way. Now, at that point in David's life, when he's dealing with his sons, he's got a big problem. And the, the, the agony of the house of David is to illustrate to us the long-term consequences of sin. And, and that's why the stories take you on, through all of this. It's, you feel like you're going through, um, uh, what is it, a... Um, well, sort of like a, a puzzle or a maze of emotions. Because here David is. He, he loves his son. Now he's got the problem of having to kill his son, but he loves his son. Then he's got the problem his whole house has fallen apart because he's got four or five wives, and the women are naturally loyal to their sons. Bathsheba is loyal to her son. Uh, Abigail is loyal to her sons. And you can't blame the women. They're the mothers. And so now you've got the queens inside the house reigning, multiple queens, each one preserving and demanding that her son be heir to accept the, the Davidic covenant. So remember, that it's not just the guys. It's the women in back of them that are operating. And you see that in the text. The women are very strong maneuvers in all the intrigues of the dynasty. It's, uh, it's kind of neat because I, it's very important we observe that, not to, to knock women, but to show that women have tremendous power. And they're, they're explicitly stated in the scriptures. And that knocks the idea that the feminist movement today is saying, ah, the Bible was written in a patriarchal period where the men had all the power. It tells me that these ladies had never read the scriptures. And, and you have the, the Davidic line, it gets so, so constricted. You know, there's an evil queen that finally comes into power. And her job is to, under Satan is to destroy the royal seed. And at one point, the royal seed is down to a little kid that they hide in the temple. It's that story in Kings. And so the whole Davidic dynasty hangs by the thread of one boy that's hidden away inside the temple for years. And, and the question you get as you read these stories, is the promise of God going to come true? Will this boy die? If this boy dies, the promise of God goes away. So it's, it's, it's like God takes you right up to the, to the edge of the cliff, two inches away, and you, you feel yourself tottering on the edge. 
And that's how suspenseful these stories are in the Old Testament. Because they're not just stories. We learn of them in Sunday school. And we become familiar with the story, David and Goliath and all the other ones. But we fail to put them together like beads on a necklace and see the big picture of what's going on here. It's a magnificent portrayal of God's hand in human history. I mean, the David, the David-Goliath story. Uh, take that one, for example. What were the credentials of the king? To, to be king in Israel, you had to be anointed by the prophet, but that wasn't enough. The prophetic anointing established that you were king, but you had to gain allegiance. Part of being king is you had to gain allegiance, the voluntary allegiance of the people. I mean, it wasn't arbitrary. It had to be voluntary. So how do you gain the allegiance of the people to make them want to follow you? You had to inspire them. With what? With leadership. So, and talent. And the story of David and Goliath is a story that he had military talent. What else do you read about David in those years of his life that he also had? Yeah, courage. I grouped that with the military background. What other things did you notice? Musical. He, he wrote song, songs and so on, and he composed. I mean, half the book of Psalms written by David. So look at, the, look at who he was. These guys, uh, in June, I'm going to go, I have four Sundays, and I'm going to go through sections of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to look at Solomon. These men were very unusual men by any standard. We read about David and Saul, you know, and we're so familiar with it, we kind of think of them as just Sunday school characters or something. But if you compare what these guys did, can you imagine a president of the United States that would be the combination of, say, Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, in the, as far as the military, or George Washington, perhaps, and uh, pick some uh, outstanding artist or musician. And imagine that all folded into one person. That multi-talent the ability to just do anything and do it great. And people just, you know, the kind of person that when they walk in the room, people just say, wow. Well, that's the kind of people that, that were, were supposed to be on the throne. And it lasted for two generations. And then you have the biggest wimps, losers, and all kinds of guys on that throne. And then you have some men that tried to hold the line, Jehoshaphat and other guys. It's an amazing, neat story of human intrigue. I just, just wish sometime we could get somebody and the money to do a great film to depict this. I think people, it would jar people loose because if you had the right actors and actresses and the good script writing, that people could just see these stories. Because we live in an increasing illiterate age. Probably less and less people are ever going to read the stories now because we have to see the story. Well, it's, and, and movies are just so costly to make. But, oh, if we could just get a, a depiction, a dramatic depiction of what these stories were like, it would be just fantastic. They always were accepted in the pagan cultures, but in the king, um, it, it started uh, about one generation after Eve because the wives of Lamech in Genesis 4.